This podcast is sponsored by the American Society for Information Science and Technology. Since 1937, ACIST has been the Society for Information Professionals, leading the search for new and better theories, techniques, and technologies to improve access to information. By the IA Summit. This year, your peers and industry experts spoke about how topics such as social networking, gaming, patterns, tagging, taxonomies, and a wide range of IA tools and techniques help users experience information. And by Boxes and Arrows. Since 2001, Boxes and Arrows has been a peer-written journal promoting contributors who want to provoke thinking, push limits, and teach a few things along the way. For more events happening all over the world, be sure and check out events.boxesandarrows.com. Nathan explores the artifacts we produce and the audience we produce them for, and by managing those artifacts to audiences, he reveals what works and what doesn't. Nathan focuses on the phases through which a deliverable evolves, the deliverable's life cycle, and why that life cycle is problematic and how to fix it with solutions such as deliverable recipes, page patterns, and even modular deliverables tailored to specific audiences. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers. Hi, everybody. Can you all hear me well? In the back, everybody's good? Awesome. Uh, really excited to be here today. Uh, we're going to be talking about audiences and artifacts, which is a key topic of discussion at HA. It's a company I founded with Dan Brown a couple years ago. We're out of Washington, D.C. area, and we do a lot of user experience design. Information architecture is really the genesis or core of our business, but we've also had the opportunity to talk a lot about documentation, and we're both sort of geeks in that regard. Um, we've had the good fortune to have a lot of client engagements where documentation has been the focus. And actually, it's not HAPE's just coming in to help design a product experience, per se, but actually help the user experience teams get better with how they do their own practice and, in this case, create deliverables. So a lot of the content and the talk we're going to have today is actually going to reveal some of the things we've learned. Um, we're going to talk about the different audiences that we typically run up against and a lot of the artifacts that are the most common ones that people produce. We'll talk a little bit about the deliverables life cycle, and then we'll jump into a lot of practical examples and end, quizzically enough, with a lot of XML. So you'll get it at the end, but um, hopefully you'll get a lot of different practical tips, and that's really the point today. So I always get inspired when I'm thinking about design by a lot of the axioms of our practice. And one of the ones that um, has been with us for a really long time is that people don't read on the web, right? They scan and they pick out the different things that they want to see word by, and as they scan that page. Um, Luke's talk on content and design showed that click map and it looked almost completely neurotic as somebody was bouncing all around the page looking for things and in almost um, ignoring the, maybe the way that the page had been laid out intentionally. We actually use those same principles at A-Shapes to apply them to how we create deliverables. And what we've learned over time is that people don't read your stuff. Okay, baseline. You create these big, huge specification documents, have all sorts of detail, and nobody ever reads them. But the point is, is that they do scan them, they do use them, they do refer to them, and that's the key thing, that when you're thinking about your deliverables, it's not about writing a book, it's not about writing Harry Potter, it's about creating a reference point for other people to help in that communication and that collaborative process of producing some kind of design. So we're constantly inspired to think about how can we produce deliverables that are better, and my particular bend is how can we do it faster um, and more efficiently so that when you hear 60-page specification, you're actually not all that intimidated. So there's a range of audiences that we talk to, 
And they start with executives, right? We hopefully at some point get the, get the opportunity to talk about strategy and convey the experience to those ex executives and product managers, and then work with those different site strategists or producers and the visual designers that want our wireframes to be low fidelity. Thanks, Keith. Um, he's a visual designer at HAPES uh, that we constantly talk about that with, but he is a consumer of my documentation. And you have the HTML, CSS people that need to start to modularize your design and, and transform it into that client-side markup. And then the developers and QA. And there's also that last little audience in the lower right corner, which is us, as we communicate across as peers and actually as we create deliverables for ourselves. And those different audiences consume the different artifacts that we produce in different ways, and they have different intentions. So there might be something as, as high level as a strategy that actually looks a lot like a PowerPoint. You have different key points that you're trying to make, and you're trying to describe those and convey the, the core principles of the design that you're working on. And then you begin to manifest that design in what may be very abstract ways. Concept models, site maps, flows that have decision points and boxes and arrows and everything, and storyboards that help convey that in a, almost a real life setting. Then you start to get more and more concrete as you work on your design. You create a wireframe schematic, just the artwork itself. You begin to annotate it with uh, different annotations and create a specification around that. And then you begin to work with other people to form deliverables a little bit downstream, such as the mock-ups as you work with, say, a visual designer and they create their style guide. Are all these, were those 10 the artifacts that we produce? Absolutely not. There are a lot of different artifacts that we have. Sketches, prototypes, co um, personas, content inventories, and I'm not necessarily going to talk about all these different types of artifacts. It's insane for a 30-minute talk. Point is, just buy Dan's book and learn a lot of stuff. So in, in our conversations we've had with our clients, we've begun to think about all these different audiences that communicate with and the artifacts we produce and who cares about what. And we've been asking them a lot, OK, what kind of value do you have in these different artifacts? And really, how important is it that we use each of these artifacts to communicate specific things to these audiences? So this is a really basic sort of heat map-like presentation or visualization where you've got all the audiences across the top, all the different types of artifacts down the side, and really, the hotter it is, the more there might be value or interest in a particular type of deliverable. Um, and as we started to map these two things together, we started to notice some different trends. One of the things is that um, I'm going to pepper this with different client quotes. And this is an example that relates an, art, uh, an audience to an artifact that was produced. Um, in this case, the client CEO just opened our comps in Photoshop, adjusted the saturation slider, and loved what he saw. And OK, so that's a really problematic thing. And actually, I got to be honest, this talk isn't about solving that or the last part of his Twitter, which said that today's the last day of the project, so they're totally screwed. Um, so with that in mind, you can't solve everything. But there are some things that you can solve. And as you think about the relationships between your audiences and your artifacts, you can start to create some different patterns and, and, and uh, interpretations of that heat map that we saw. The first is thinking almost as a waterfall, but not necessarily. Um, you have different, some of these first two audiences that think more abstractly, and you need to communicate at a higher level with and not bore them with the details or drill them into the details, which is really where they're not going to get their own return on investment. And as the product managers have told us a lot, I want to focus on what moves the needle, per se. But then you have all those folks downstream from you that are trying to manifest your design, code it, and really present it, and make sure it's the, as polished as it is, or take your deliverables and work with and implement a design to continually produce content based on that. 
And those folks are interested in the more concrete kind of deliverables, the annotated wireframes, the specifications. And in fact, this threshold could be a valuable way for you to think about your deliverables multiple that you produce in your, in your different uh, parts of your process and how you communicate to maybe choose that line as a way to communicate one way to one group and another way to a different group. But you have these breakpoints, right? Product managers and executives, they really identify with mock-ups. They really identify with the crystallized interpretations of what they perceive as a finalized experience and is, and is ready to get built. And so there are things that you can do to try and utilize your deliverables to try and break that and communicate with them in ways that they, that they, can, uh, they, they can work with. Another thing we've realized is not all documents are for everybody involved in the project. And let's break it down really simply to think about some of the perceived values that we have of maybe just the IA's documentation, the stuff that we produce for ourselves in our work, and then all the documents that we actually can, um, publish so that other people can consume them. And there are some distinctions in those values that those two different groups have, us and them, us against them. Um, what we do in our practices very early on, we'll interview a lot of different folks, and part of that is a very structured interview that says, here are all the different types of artifacts, and how important are they to you? And we have a really basic scale, and, and, we exp and we're working with them to help them just essentially go from zero to five to rank or um, score the different value of each of those artifacts. And so what we found is, first off, everybody loves wireframes. That they, the perception from, an, uh, from our practice or of our practice is that that's the core deliverable that we produce. That's their expectation of what we're going to deliver on the project. Um, the level of fidelity of those wireframes is not necessarily defined. The amount of annotation that those wireframes have, if it's just the artwork or it's actually a full-blown annotated spec, that's not defined. But the fact is, you're an IA, I expect you to produce wireframes. In addition, what we found is there are different elements of our documentation that actually have more value than the IAs themselves perceive. So something like a change history, actually we don't work very hard on sometimes, and it's actually something that turns out being very valuable as we record the progression of our design across a series of phases. Another thing that we've found is that some of our abstract work, i.e. like concept models, they return a glossy stare from everybody else. Not just, <laughs> not, not just in terms of, of when we actually try to walk them through something that is incredibly abstract and we're really we're really adept at thinking about those things in those ways, and they say, isn't that a sitemap? But also, <laughs> when we're trying to sell the work, and I almost took this survey that we do from time to time to, to almost educate them, and concept models was one that repeatedly was like, I have no idea what that is, as, far, as opposed to the, what they interpreted as a concrete understanding of what wireframes were, concept models, they had no idea, and so selling that kind of deliverable, educating them on how it's used, and then actually using it in a project is pretty hard. Another thing that we found, and it manifested itself in the discussion of sitemaps is, our uh, consumers of our documentation tended to value sitemaps more than we do. But actually what the, the model is, is not necessarily your org organization map sort of hierarchy of, of a basic layout or a basic collection of pages, but really, particularly visual designers and folks downstream look to information architects to define the roadmap of where that design's going at all the levels of the hierarchy of your design, be it pages, be it all the different components of your design, be it specific elements, or even the way that you're organizing collections of pages. 
they really look to the information architect to lay the groundwork, the taxonomy, the labeling of all those things so that maybe downstream everybody else can be speaking the same language. And we'll see an example of, of a company that's actually done that really, really well and they've created a threaded language to do that. On a per-project basis, it's, it's that roadmap that they're looking for the IA to create. And it's a collaborative process. It's not something you do in a vacuum, but it's actually something that all of the other consumers tended to look to the information architects to document and create that almost reference table for the project. So there's this deliverable life cycle that we talk about a lot at H-Shapes, and you'll see why in some of the following slides. But when we say deliverable life cycle, we mean we start in this preparation mode. We might have some templates. That's what that abstract gray stuff in the upper left-hand corner is. We might have some old deliverables that we open up and we grab a bunch of stuff and then we copy it into our new deliverable and we just start from there and repeat all our mistakes. So, the, but the point is you have this portion of the life cycle where you just, you get to a point where you need to start recording your design and then it begins to evolve over a period of time where you might start inserting some conceptual stuff. You're communicating a lot with the product manager. Um, who's giving you all the requirements. Maybe you're vetting it very lightly with visual designers or other members of the experience team. But then you start to create variations because you realize you're not covering all the cases. And it starts to blow out. And a lot of the, the strategic stuff starts to not have a lot of value because your design's becoming more concrete. So that might get deleted and lost unless you're versioning your files really well. And then you really start to layer in all these different details. And it's when you get to that point in the process where you've got all those details that I'm done, I've got a published product, or a published deliverable in a sense, and my role in the project may be nearing an end. But the point is, as you go through this life cycle, and you look at that last portion, who really are you talking to by that point? Um, and that's a real big question, because you end up trying to talk to everybody with this single document, and they all have to really learn the different pieces and parts of that document, um, and how to use it for the job that they're trying to accomplish. And so as you go through this life cycle, there are a lot of different impacts to that life cycle as you iterate and as you really re remove and add different things to your deliverable. There's this fact that sometimes things get to scope, so you've created this really elegant taxonomy to all your pages, and then guess what? You had four sections, and sections two and three are gone. And so now people are like, where's section two and three? It's not in the document. You have every, everything labeled one and four. What does that mean? Um, you have also this evolution of the design, per se. And you, this is an evolution not just of the fidelity and, and precision of your wireframes and, and as you really started to codify your solution, but also the evolution of the design across the project and as those mock-ups might be developing in parallel. Or there's HTML um, page types that the CSS guys building are building in parallel and how all those things start to evolve together. Another thing is that you have disruption, right? Somebody just drops a bomb. We have this VP in our organization that every time we try to design um, a connection manager, he comes in and says, I want it to be really a simple, and I just want an on-off button, but I want an, a link to every part of our portal. Um, so we designed a really elegant thing, but we have to go right back to the drawing board because the VP is something that we have a difficult time controlling. What I'm most interested in most often is how your consumer population uh, of your deliverable grows over time in a sense. You end up, or what we find is most often you're working with somebody specific, maybe an IA collaborator, but with your product manager, early on, and then you start to bring these other influencers into the document. And that really, as I've talked about, impacts that life cycle, but also there are often times when you've got these teams behind the people you talk to, and that's actually maybe the people that are using your deliverable to do their job the most, 
and you never even see their face. You never even hear their voice. But it's really your deliverable and then that surrogate that's really representing the design that you're trying to communicate. And that can make it really tough and make in that kind of environment your deliverable has all that much more value. And there are a lot of other impacts to that life cycle as well. So the question is, what can you do about it? So we're going to walk through um, six different types of things within this presentation to try and help us be more structured, focused, predictable, prepared, investigative, and mechanized with how we produce our deliverables. And once we finish with those, we'll, we'll be all done. The first one, I want to start with something really simple that everybody can identify with. We do a lot of conference calls at HAPES. We're talking with our clients, we're talking with each other, and we have this moment on the call in the first minute where you need to synchronize with everybody on the call and say, I'm going to open up X document, we're going to go to this page, and it's interesting as we review deliverables of the teams we work with, how disabled their actual paper or PDF documents are because they don't even enable the IA to, to, to start with that statement. So there's this thing that we call document metadata in terms of the documentation systems that we build that really all those core parts of the deliverable that enable you to have those very precise connections to the content that you're trying to talk about. Structure like maybe the title of the document, the author and the version of the document, um, and that those, those uh, aspects of the deliverable are repeated across all the different pages, or that you have page numbers, and Todd Werfel, who does a really good job at indicating the total page count in your deliverable, and that's actually where we got that idea by looking at one of his, you see five of seven in that lower left-hand corner, so that they can anticipate as they open up a deliverable, maybe the scale of the deliverable, and all those little hooks really are important because they enable you to more fluidly communicate with your audience, particularly if you're not working face-to-face -face or you're not sitting next to them paging through the document for them. Another thing is that as IAs, there's a certain implicit assumption that we're structured, right? That we think in a very organized way. And, but as the deliverables that we've seen, that doesn't bear out the, the numbering systems and the tables of contents and the ways that we actually create the deliverables that are really a reflection of are polished as a designer in a sense. And if you can't get this stuff right in how you're creating your deliverables, how are they going to trust that you're going to get the actual design right too for your end audience? And there's a certain question of reputation there. And then there's this concept of tracking changes like I talked about before. This is just one example of many different ways that you can have document metadata in your of tracking open questions or requirements or connecting them. But this is a really important thing for some of the downstream folks just because if your, your um, change history is as short as this, as you go across what appears to be about two months, you'll notice that there's not all that much detail. So in a sense, if you have somebody that's jumping into your process at specific points, it's hard for them to do that differential of what's changed. But your document really is evolving, and you don't want to say, well, just open up 1.4 and 1.7 and look at each page sequentially and find the differences. That's not going to work for them. The purpose here would be to be detailed and, and useful and auditable so that, in fact, we use our change histories to almost serve as the meeting agenda of things we want to review. Say, let's, even though we're not saying, hey, let's start on the change history page, it might be Jeff and IA on our team that says, hey, I've got this, these are all the open questions, these are the closed questions, let's walk through the changes one by one so we're all in sync. The next thing is to be focused with your documentation. And this is where I really challenge a lot of IAs as we talk about deliverables in these engagements to think about producing more than one deliverable. Um, and I know it's really hard. It, it may seem hard, but there are techniques that you can do to, to ease that production of more than one document so that you can speak to these different audiences in specific ways. One is to actually just use simple layers, right? 
you've got this document, you've got your document metadata, we sort of call that the bottom layer, it's across every page. You actually have the artwork that's visually describing and, and really 95% of the value oftentimes of the document. Um, but then you may have different annotations that speak to different types of audiences. One of the common splits that we see is the way you want to speak to editors that are actually going to use and publish, use your document to, to create content and publish it, as opposed to the engineers that need to th see things like states and behaviors and, and data formats and that kind of stuff because they're coding the design itself. And oftentimes, if you intermingle those, it becomes a quite modeled presentation, even if you've got structure there for them to interpret the stuff that they may be interested in or not. Why not just use a layer to separate those? Another thing, and I'm not going to get in too deep, but everybody hears me too, um, touting the, the, the horn of mo modularity. It's a sense that every, what we see most often is everybody not only produces one deliverable, but all the artifacts and, and aspects of that deliverable are in one single file. And what that does is really lock you into any reuse in the assets that you produce during your project to be just in that file. It might be a Word document. Or in the case of Visio, it might be just a single Visio document. With some of the tools that we use at HAPES with the Creative Suite 3, we actually have the opportunity to create a linked hierarchy of files so that we might have some components that we use in multiple wireframe views, and we might use those views in a flow. And all three of those different types of assets we actually place into a deliverable file. Well, that helps with reuse and scale and, and really speed of production, but this modularity also makes it easy to take different wireframe views and put them in different documents across phases, across versions, but maybe even within the same project to communicate to different audiences in different ways. A really simple example is, I've got a quick wireframe review I need to do. I might have five wireframe files, and I just put them into this big template that has a huge container, and I just size each of the wireframes to fit in those containers, print them out, and I've got these big tabloid-sized wireframes with zero annotations. But then, at the same time, I'm working on a spec doc that is letter size, it's, it's uh, landscape oriented, and I'm placing those wireframes and maybe even cropping them in interesting ways to communicate specific aspects of those designs, and that might be my published deliverable. The point is, like include files from 10 years ago, our wireframes are being used for both of those documents, and so that reuse enables us to communicate in, in very interesting ways. The next thing that we see as we look through 150 deliverable PDFs that the clients give us is we see that there's no predictable pattern at how those pages are organized. It's so interesting that as these templates manifest themselves, even folks that have the nice background in Visio that has maybe the document metadata at the top, as you look at the page content from page to page to page, there's no discernible pattern to where everything's going to show up. Um, and there's no real structure that so as someone's consuming your document and scanning it and referring to it that they can predict where a specific type of annotation or a specific type of artwork's gonna appear on the page. So what we recommend is that we have these things called page patterns that really combine text and shapes and serve as really a template for a specific page of your deliverable. When we, when we use those, it actually um, will take those page patterns, which is really page title, container, um, some different annotations, some words, and even the markers that we use. And our page may not look like this exactly when we're done with it, but we'll take those different elements, we'll lay it on the page, and we've got that nice starting point. Everybody loves their own secret sauce, and, and H-Shapes, despite all of its structure that it gives, can't necessarily say all of your pages need to look exactly like this. But what the page patterns do is get this implicit consistency since the starting points are the same. 
And once you actually apply that page pattern, you've got a nice, simple, chunked out wireframe. You've got the different, in this case, highlighted areas of the design, and you're creating some nomenclature of how you're going to call each of the different componentized pieces of the page. And so you'll notice it drifted a little bit, but these page patterns might drift a lot, but you still have a same common visual language and structure to the page that you're uh, creating. And the way that we use page patterns is that we've got this big library. We might use something like Bridge. And we honestly navigated visually to look at for the specific type of page that we want to see. And then once we find that page, we just drag it into our deliverable document, drop it. And actually, it's not like a linked piece of artwork or anything, but it's got all the different pieces, parts, so that as I create a deliverable page, I don't need to recreate it over and over again by, OK, type in a header and style the header, type in a bunch of content, put a bunch of bullets, drag a bunch of different markers from some panel that I need to expand and then collapse because I'm done with it. But instead, everything's just there to get started with. The next thing is be prepared. Um, so often, we see people that will say, what do you do to start a deliverable in a project? And more than 50% of the IAs answer, I open up an old deliverable, I strip out a bunch of stuff, and I copy what I need, and I just start with the next project. And it's, there's seemingly no preparation in that process to really think about what are you trying to communicate that's unique about this design. Um, one of the terms that's been way overused to the, at the IA Summit this year, and I'm really kind of regretful that this is part of my presentation, but Jared talked about it, Leah talked about it, lots of people said recipe, 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 but that is a metaphor that applies here as well. As you're thinking about your document, we often think about them in terms of recipes. Recipes have a specific description to them. They have a title. They have a specific use and context. They actually have at a high level, what, what it's gonna, how many people is this going to serve? How long is it going to take to create? And then you also have these two other key aspects of the recipe, the ingredients of the recipe, and the actual preparation process of the recipe. So to us, the ingredients are page patterns. So by having this library of the page patterns that I just talked about, HHAPES has this common language that we can quickly say, OK, you need to just introduce the wireframe, chunk it out, and that's the level of detail that we need now. Or we can instantly say, OK, you need to show three variations of a wireframe side by side on a single page. And so we can draw from those different ingredients to really quickly produce the recipe of that document and ultimately collaborate on that recipe by maybe whiteboarding it out. This is from a couple weeks ago where we were talking about, OK, we need to cover. We need to set the stage a little bit with a preview or maybe link it to the strategic work we've done before. Then we're going to talk about some high-level topics. Then we'll get into the content of the site. And then we're not ready to talk about the calls to action. So we're not going to have a lot of content there. But by going through this process, we actually had three IAs on the project. All three of us were producing content for that same deliverable, and we immediately mapped those to page patterns, but also began to use this recipe to chunk out the work across all of us. And it was a nice environment in which we could really plan that deliverable. On the opposite end of the spectrum, you might actually have a very formalized practice that you have specific types of deliverables that you want to create all the time. Or you might be a... Um, a client that is creating this library of methods that they, that they want their vendors to all adhere to, and so that they use these recipes to formally communicate what their expectations are. Or you might be a single IA of one, and you might use this recipe to clarify with your audience, maybe a director of user experience, maybe the developers, to say, is this what you're looking for? But regardless, you can formalize recipes to say, I've got a description, this is a competitive analysis, in general, the competitive analysis is going to have these pieces and parts. And these are the different steps that I'm going to go through to create this competitive analysis. From a deliverable perspective, we focus on the middle part. 
But we also focus on that right-hand side, too, because there, there's this creation of the competitive analysis that's going to go through a series of stages, at which point we're going to start organizing different assets and then communicate them in the, those different parts. The, 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 the approach we're going to define first, we're going to identify what competitors we're going to have, how are we going to present that in our deliverable. Second thing is we're going to have this huge range of annotated screenshots, and so how many of those are we going to have? But then third, how are we going to organize our key findings? Um, and so what we've done with competitive analysis is I went to Dan's book, I looked at all the nice screenshots he has in there, and I created a page pattern for every different thing I saw. And so, particularly in the findings area, there's all sorts of different plots and recommendation tables and comparative tables with check marks and stuff. But we actually, since we have this approach of using a recipe like that, the client said, I want all of my vendors to do competitive analyses just like this. Um, but there's still this play here because with a recipe you always have your own secret sauce or your own little nuances on how you do it. So it doesn't necessarily become this huge constraint or roadblock in producing what you need to. Since we have these page patterns and we have this approach of planning out our, our, our deliverables via what we're calling recipes, we have this documentation system that has this foundation within which we publish all this stuff. We can actually use XML to codify the starting points for longer documents. In the case of a formalized recipe like a competitive analysis, we link all those different page patterns together and run a really simple script that creates a page, places the page pattern, and titles the page. Creates a page, places the page pattern, titles the page. And it's all based on these base, this basic XML that is, I think, relatively self-evident, where it just identifies chapters and pages and titles of those pages, and even the page title style, because we might be using some numbering system that the deliverable system has. But the point is, simple script, double click on it, I'm going to do a competitive analysis, and boom, I've got this. 20-page document that has all the different pieces and starting points so that all I need to worry about is placing screenshots and then typing over placeholder text, and then my competitive analysis is done. So, and that's really the process where the script will run through and it will just produce one page after another, and it's just really nice to now have this document specifically targeted, and it's got all of this different starting point content for us to work with. The fifth one is really the softest one, but I've found has been the most important in my maturation as an IA through, through my career, is be investigative about your deliverables. So often we talk about the user research where we're showing our design to our customers and we're getting good feedback into the process, but far less often I see the actual IAs going to their different consumers and their audiences and asking them what they want. Instead, we just produce the wireframes and they consume them and they're happy, and that's just the way it's going to be. So the, the point is, apply user research techniques, and it's time to get serious about our deliverables. I'm totally kidding. I'm not talking about lab testing of deliverables. That's insane. OK. <laughs> Instead, let's just get some feedback into our process, which was one of the three tenets that Jared was talking about in his keynote. Um, I think it applies to deliverables, too, which is, Plan your deliverables collaboratively. As you're setting your expectations for the project, don't just talk about the activities you're going to do, but more specifically, talk about what they're going to get and how in-depth it's going to be and what kind of structure it's going to have. And do that kind of planning in, in the kickoff sessions or the early portions of your, of your design process so that even those stakeholders way down the line can have some input in terms of how that del or deliverable life cycle is going to form and how that's going to influence ultimately what they're going to get at the end of the line. The next thing, and probably the most important thing, is sit down with them and maybe even ask them, hey, um, so what about this login? When doesn't the login apply and you can go immediately to the page they requested? And actually ask them to interpret your deliverable because, boom, you'll realize that right, off, right from, from that start, you're going to realize that they can't interpret it correctly to build it the right way. 
The last thing is iterate and improve and, and work with your audiences to do that over time. The last thing is be mechanized with your deliverables. We've created this foundation, we've got this XML stuff, but really what I, when I talk about mechanization, I talk about creating some fluid relationships with other teams to produce deliverables that are targeted within the design system that, that folks work within. With regard to one of our clients' son, they actually have an extremely mature componentized library approach for how they produce their website design. And in fact, you can go to Sun and in, you can look at the code and you will see how they componentize all the different chunks of every single page in the site. It was born out of their design technologists, which is to say that they published this componentized library publicly to, for anybody to see. And, but they do that because it's a lot easier for vendors to get access to it. And it's a lot easier for everybody to go to this common location to understand the nomenclature and the, and the taxonomy of how the design technologists, i.e. JavaScript, HTML, CSS guys, have created this library-based approach. Everything on their site needs to conform to one of these or it can't get published. Um, but the advantage here is then they said, hey, H-Shapes, you guys do this wireframing stuff. You get sort of mechanized. Can we create a wireframing system based on that same thing? And we saw this as a tremendous opportunity because in our work at Sun, we can now conform to the same language that they have and thus all the people, the publishers and the engineers and the managers and, and even content stakeholders that need to adopt all this stuff, we can speak the same language as a design technologist can and then create this more, much more fluid process of producing our deliverables. So what we built was this wireframing system where I'm going to take that same page and I'm going to create it out of these components that are all just little wireframe snippets of all the different components in their library. Now, these aren't necessarily patterns per se, which are global solutions to common design problems, but rather design systems specific, specific to a region of the page, have a very specific layout and um, visual approach. And what we do is we have this library where using those component codes and the labels and the taxonomies, we create the wireframes really fast just by dragging and dropping. This has really created a much more fluid relationship, first and foremost, between us, the IAs, and the design technologists within the same user experience team, such that we can negotiate with them over time how we need to build new components, that we can discover their, um, their intended use of each of the different things as we're forming our design but really also so that we can produce structured deliverables, and you'll notice those little red slivers, as we PDF it, it'll actually have a link to their componentized library so that as people outside our organization, like an engineer or a publisher, can say, okay, you're using that component, I'm gonna click on that, and I'll just go to the website and grab the code for it. And so we have this, this nice threaded nomenclature and, and, and organization of how we're doing this design process that, that works really well. But now you've got two artifacts. They're relatively high fidelity wireframes and the actual firm HTML that somebody can code against. And once we get to the point where the wireframes on a specific process mature to a specific point, or to a certain point, we start producing HTML and we have to manage these two things in synchronization. That's bad um, because all sorts of issues arise, right? Um, the first thing is how do we keep them in sync as the design starts to change? How do we invest in the wireframes more or do we just want to have the HTML? And there's context that we worry about because we've got so much context in the wireframes that isn't in the HTML, which is just using sort of the bland or components as a baseline. What's the process for managing these two things? But I think most importantly, how are we using these two artifacts of the process to communicate different things to the same audiences and different things to different audiences? And that's the really key learning thing that we're still going through the process of identifying how these two things fit. But the truth be told, we still have got a more, more efficient process. One of the ideas that we have is, 
we've got all these wireframe snippets, we've got these HTML page types that we create, um, how can we actually script some of these things as starting points themselves? So much like you saw with the recipes and page patterns, we've got a component type, we've got a wireframing template that you saw. We can now create a basic definition of a page that says, okay, in different regions of the page, what components go into each spot. And then all, the only other thing we need is a description of their design system, i.e. their grid and the different regions within which you drop those components. So we've created a basic script for, for uh, the documentation that, system that we have in which um, we do three things. We just click on the script, and it'll take a little bit longer, but I'll talk about the rationale for it. You select the template, you select the, the uh, uh, design system grids, and then you actually select the actual description of the page type as well. And then it just says, okay, I've got this component, I'm gonna put it here. I'm gonna get that component and put it there. And so there are a lot of opportunities that this hints at. This isn't necessarily the, the holy grail of anything. But what it is, is speaking to the fact that we can now use XML to produce a wireframe, or maybe it's the XML that, that the IA is using to actually create some of these artifacts. That same XML could be used by the HTML people to create some transformation to create the HTML page just as much. And so you start to create these common things that thread those cycles together and maybe speak to the synchronization aspect. Or honestly, maybe we just use those XML page descriptions as common starting points for our wireframing process because we know that there are a range of variations for how their product pages work. Or they have different types of login pages that apply to different experiences. So why not just script some of those via what you saw was relatively straightforward XML and, and create the wireframes in that way. So hopefully that's given you a glimpse of some of the things that we're trying to do, um, trying to keep our eye on the ball of the, the, the key aspects of our deliverables, but also trying to creatively solve some of the problems that, that we run into with these big design systems. But I think, truth be told, and I thank Austin for this quote, it was from his blog last week, let's keep our eye on the real ball here, and that's the design. The deliverables are just the manifestation and the codification of that design so we can communicate it. So um, thanks, Austin. Uh, and Thanks, everybody. That's, that's all I got.